The man that hates making money. How are you? Morning. I just say uh, you, you got cut off there, dude. I don't know if you know this, but I have pretty severe ADHD, and the amount of WhatsApp chats that you guys have added to me <laughs> to, or that we have created, is so overwhelming <laughs> and astounding that there's literally no way I'm going to be able to continue to do business with you guys. Okay, okay, okay. You're not alone, by the way. My wife, know. Emmy, she's always like, "Why are you on the phone all the time?" Are you like looking at Twitter or scrolling TikTok? I'm like, I don't even have TikTok. I'm literally just talking to Mario and Romy and their team and 17 other people. I don't. I, I, it's very, very overwhelming. I'm going to get there, though. I'm going to, you know, it's good for me. It's like, uh, but yeah, man, I don't know how you do it. You must have 400 essential WhatsApp chats going at all time. Am I talking to myself? No, no, you weren't. I was laughing like crazy. Also, I'll say Gaurav. Yeah, Gaurav. can you hear me? Yeah, I think Gaurav. Gaurav. Yeah, 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 we hear you. Yeah, yeah we we're going to. Yeah, we're going to. But Gaurav, by the way, he went through a phase. He hates groups as well. Gaurav is a common friend, everyone. And I've got another story about Gaurav. I was on a call with him. You'd like it to do with Davos and escorts. But before getting to that, I was um, <laughs> I was hold on. So he he one day just snapped. He literally left all the groups, and my team freaked out. Like, oh, Mario, what's happening? Like, Guys, don't worry. He has a WhatsApp chat overload. We'll add him back gradually. <laughs> it worked. So yeah, we use WhatsApp a lot. Yeah, I think that's gonna happen to me. So much. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, in in Davos, so I was just chatting to Gaurav, and um, <laughs> so he. He's like, so usually I go to Davos as well. I was there for the last couple, but I didn't want to go this time. <laughs> but he's like, Mario, you're still here in spirit. The number of people that sent me, so my team did a post, so they get the credit, not me, about how escorts in Davos, Davos are booked out. And they put it on their website. We're booked out throughout Davos. So we, the team did a post on it and went viral, a few million impressions. And then, then Gaurav, he's in Davos now with the C. He's like, Mario, the main topic of discussion in Davos is everyone's trying to figure out who's booking out the escorts. Everyone's sending me that link. I'm going to important dinners, important lunches, important meetings. And the question everyone's trying to figure out is the source of your tweet. Who booked those escorts? <laughs> so that was, uh, unless you finished the call with him about 10, 20 minutes ago. My money's on Jamie Dimon. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I think that when he did that CNBC interview, they were lined up just off camera. <laughs> and that's why he was so, that's why he was so impatient. Say, I, I don't have time to talk about Bitcoin. I'm never going to talk about Bitcoin again. I'm done. Can you see? I've got 700 women over here. And then, and, and then they start talking about the use case of Monero. <laughs> it's like, when I want to pay these women, I pay them with Monero. No one knows about it. Bitcoin is very transparent. <laughs> Everything on blockchain. <laughs> I would say we're off to a great start here. Really, just a <laughs> compelling conversation. Guys, this is the quality you can expect when you tune in early uh, to Crypto Town Hall. Is Rand coming today? <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I, uh, I hope we didn't block him. Like oh, doesn't he have a, does, didn't he like fly in 700 people to South Africa to do ayahuasca or something? What's, what's yeah, yeah, yeah. He got, his, he got his team to do some retreat and uh, taking different substances. Um, I, I, I didn't ask for more information. So he'll probably either be late. That's literally what he said on the show yesterday. I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, I think they might have a dinner or something. Either they have a dinner, either he'll so, be late uh, or he'll come on high. But yeah. um, it, it's a shame if he doesn't oh. come on because this is the ETF discussion again. And I think it will be, again, a good debate on whether why the markets are, uh, are crashing and, uh, and the numbers. But I know you covered it in your show. So maybe you can start it off with an overview. And we've got Matthew here uh, as well as Dave, Jason, Simon. 
Yeah, I, listen, we've had the uh, daily debate over whether these were a uh, massive failure or massive success. I think by any metric, they're a massive success. And I think as time passes, we're, we're seeing that, you know, uh, we always look to sort of James Safer and Eric Baltunas to track this for us. They've become sort of uh, ETF Jesus uh, or ETF Batman and Robin at the very least for all of us. And, you know, Eric continues to beat the drum that these were really the most successful ETF launch of all time collectively. Uh, just a, f- a few things, you know, to note BlackRock, uh, theirs was the third most uh, successful ETF of all time itself in a vacuum, the third fastest to a billion AUM, only beat by Bido, which was the Bitcoin futures ETF and GLD. And you have to remember BlackRock obviously competing with 10 others and still got to a billion, I believe, in, in four days, sitting at around 1.2 billion. Now, Fidelity's already over a billion. Uh, on, on the fourth or fifth day of trading, it was either Wednesday or Tuesday, Eric Baltunas noted that there was a 34% increase in volume, which is something you never see on a, on a spot ETF launch, an ETF launch of any sort. You generally see, obviously, a trickling uh, in demand and it slowly goes down, but there was actually a major increase uh, in, in demand for these, which he thought was of note and a really good sign. Really, by any metric, volume especially, and volume is what brings interest, they've been extremely successful. I think the story here is just the GBTC overhang, you know, uh, and uh, the selling of GBTC is a huge, is a huge, uh, you know, is a huge headwind, uh, but it's going to eventually end. Listen, I think we should talk to the guests about it. Uh, that That's the gist of it. I mean, for people who don't understand why GB, people would sell GBTC, just a very quick and dirty, there's three reasons. A, there was a ton. J- JP Morgan estimated $3 billion worth uh, of trading on the discount strictly. Literally, traders who had no interest in Bitcoin, GBTC, anything, who were just taking advantage of a 50% or lower at a certain time discount, waiting for a conversion when that uh, discount to NAV went to zero, immediately taking profit. They sell GBTC. Grayscale has to then send Bitcoin to Coinbase to sell on the open market. We've seen hundreds of millions of outflows every day. And obviously, that's selling pressure, legitimate selling pressure. You have people who are locked in GBTC, uh, unable to redeem for an extended period of time, who are looking to get out at any point. And of course, the final one is that, you know, Grayscale decided to keep their fees at 1.5% when they have competitors that are at 0.2%. So they're making the gamble, obviously, or the bet. They've probably done the math that there's quite a few people who have a large position in GBTC and don't want to take the taxable event or pay capital gains on selling that GBTC to buy something for a lower fee. So they're willing to pay the 1.5% fee. There's also some who will just value the size and liquidity and the ability to get in and out and won't mind paying that fee. But anyone in a tax advantaged fund or who would rather pay for that lower fee is going to sell their GBTC. And that money is going to come back in through another ETF, right? And some of that is delayed because of a T plus one and T plus two settlement. So there's a lot of dynamics here, but the real story is GBTC is uh, being sold off for various reasons, and that's putting sell pressure on the market, and that will eventually end. To be clear, there's a lot of bad takes on X where people are saying that Grayscale is dumping on the market. This is not Grayscale. This is the mechanics of the ETF. 
Yeah, so question for the audience. <laughs> Scott, usually you ask the questions and never give your opinion. Today, you gave your opinion. It didn't ask any questions at all. But the, 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 yeah, that was bad. The, I loved because it. you hit me with so many uh, WhatsApp chats that my brain's not functioning. Uh, no, no. Literally, if you look at the DM I just sent you now, I think you giving that recap is, is incredible. I think you should do it in every single space. And, and Matthew, I'd love you to jump in on this one. It's essentially the, the performance of the ETFs. I was going through the numbers as Scott was speaking. And then the market is like everyone's question is that do you expect the market to go lower? I know it's a question that's impossible to answer. Answer, but maybe giving us your your high, high level uh, perspective on, on where you see things a week after the ETF launch or whatever has been more than a week. I think. Yeah, Scott, uh, I think you did a, a great rundown. Um, you know, I, I want to thank everyone really for for the support of of Hodel. Um, Eric Belkunas said there's going to be a strong middle class to these products and. This is one of the biggest uh, ETF launches we've ever had in terms of organic volumes uh, day after day. Uh, we had so many retail orders at the open that the market maker uh, couldn't handle it. And, um, you know, that's why we opened uh, 10 minutes late. Uh, there have been virtually no orders above 7,000 shares. So it's all the plebs out there uh, supporting the middle class. Thank you for that. Uh, you know, I think to the point on GBTC, uh, these are sophisticated investors who have switching costs. And some of that is taxes. Uh, and some of that is just trading in the market. And they're, they're doing it, uh, in, um, pieces. And then they're going to get back in, in pieces. And yesterday is the first day that you can see kind of net outflows across the board because of the GBTC, you know, coming out and then people taking their time to come back in. And, you know, we can, We've talked to some of those people and that's what's going on. So, you know, be, be careful buying a, a ETF on the first day of trading with a market order like that. Uh, that's, you know, you're going to get some volatility. And I think now the market is just digesting that, that froth. If you look at the, uh, the BTC long short ratio on Binance, uh, you know, it, it reached almost three X. It's still quite elevated. Uh, and, you can see some um, defense here at, at 40K. Uh, and I think a lot of that is going to be, you know, a little bit of macro from here as, as BTC ETF kind of takes uh, the back foot uh, in terms of the, the news flow. Uh, but yeah, thanks for the, thanks for the support on HODL. This is a lot, you know, this is going to be a long, um, a long game. You know, this, these products are going to be around for a long time. There's going to be a lot of them that, that do well. Uh, yeah, That's I love nice. the point that this is real volume coming from retail and that the community who is looking to buy this was obviously supporting the crypto native firms like Vanek. I, I think that's a inspired and, and great story. I'm actually curious, Matthew, We've one of the bigger stories that we've been talking about, obviously, is Vanguard in particular, but of course, Edward Jones, Merrill Lynch, a number of financial institutions not even offering these products to their clients. I think some of them are probably waiting to do due diligence, see the dust settle and bring them in. but Vanguard pretty much said, we're never doing this, right? And so have you been hearing from anyone that's saying, man, we tried to buy it, but we can't. We literally don't have access. Not on the institutional side. Um, you know, on the retail side, uh, I'm, I'm reading the same news flow that you are. Uh, there's going to be the no-coiner firms like 
vanguard, uh, and you know, and that's until until the younger generation kind of takes over. Uh, and then there's going to be the 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 bulge brackets, uh, like the UBSs, where you know if you're over 10 million in AUM, you can buy it, even though they tell you that their macro folks don't like it. And those AUM levels are going to come down by orders of magnitude over the next two years, and, or and or disappear for uh, some portion of the firms that don't offer them now. Uh, and then you know that that ratio will be interesting to observe. Go ahead, Tom. Hey, morning, everybody. Um, so just to echo Matt's point there a bit, this is really going to be a generational shift. And it's, you know, it's going to be a trickle now, but eventually it's going to be more of a tsunami, right? I just saw a report the other day from FINRA and the CFA Institute. So really reputable firms. And they did a survey of what Gen Z millennials and Gen X holds. And by a large percentage margin, those classes, especially Gen Z and millennials, hold more crypto than they do individual stocks, mutual funds, and ETFs. So, you know, it, it's one of those things like skate to where the puck is going, which still boggles my mind how some of these politicians don't see it, right? I mean, the the younger generation is already investing in this stuff, and the drum beats only going to get louder for each cycle as numbers go up. So, um, you know, it's just going to take a little bit of time, a little bit of uh, movement from some of the old boomer money as, as things change, but it's, we know where the, the puck's going. Yeah. I mean, devil's advocate to that. And I, by the way, hundred percent agree with you, but, but I'm hosting here. Uh, are those Gen Z and younger millennials going to just continue to buy Bitcoin and never touch ETFs? Uh, like, has anything changed with the launch of an ETF product for the generation that's already crypto native and buying these assets? Do you think? I mean, have you, have you seen the ETF flows for 2023? Another record year. Uh, this is just a, a killer app, killer wrap. Uh, you know, it continues to take meaningful amounts of share within within TradFi, even if TradFi is losing share to crypto, which is what 50 bits of the world. Uh, not going to change ETF's momentum. Obviously, self-serving in my view, but there it is. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Tom. I was going to ask you another question. Go ahead, please. No, no, just very briefly. Like fundamentally, ETFs are just better products than mutual funds. There's very few reasons to really use a mutual fund anymore. And in my view, it's just inertia from the old guard of, of individuals who are still selling those products or buying those products. The fees are higher, they're less tax efficient, um, and everything's moving towards ETF. So it's just really getting another generation. Isn't Vanguard the, I, I could be wrong, but isn't Vanguard the lar largest mutual fund company in the world? They're certainly up there. Yes. <laughs> okay. So that, that tells part of the story, I would say, with Vanguard. Guys, I, I'm curious in the comments, actually, if anyone in the audience can tell us if you've had any experience trying to buy these and have struggled to be able to do so, if you're in the United States, if your brokerage offers them or not, would love to hear uh, from all of you. Uh, Simon, go ahead. Yeah, I think the whole story here is tax. So, um, you know, I, I imagine people owning both. So, you know, you have your tax efficient retirement structures, you've got a job, you get a set amount every month, um, you put that in your Roth IRA or SIP or whatever you've got in your jurisdiction. Um, but it's capped at a certain point. So as you generate a certain level of wealth, or you start to come into money, um, people do the whole self custody um, story, you know, story as well. And so I think some people will hold like to the cap of the tax efficiency uh, within the ETF structure based upon their employment income, um, and any and any and any other side they'll probably do the whole self custody thing as the younger generations. Even the price action, I think it's a tax story as well. So 
imagine you've got a bunch of people that were in um, grayscale from the you know the sixty nine thousand dollar top. Um, everyone wants to get out of grayscale because the fees are ridiculous. But those that are in a lower cost base are probably not going to get out um, because they don't want to take the tax heat. But those who are at the higher tax base, uh, they'll take the capital loss and then come back into do some tax harvesting, come into a um, a more efficient ETF. So um, I, I imagine as well that if you're in grayscale and you're the generation that didn't really have the stockbroker account and stuff like that, you were just forced into it for GBTC. You probably got a bit of an onboarding process and a time lag in order to get into the next ETF. So I, I can't imagine that a bunch of people sold and then they don't want into Bitcoin again. I mean, there'll be some of that. So I think it's a, it's just a time lag and a tax story that we're seeing. Yeah, as I said, hey, uh, just I a heads JP up. Uh, we've, ahead. I've, yeah. I've sp- I have spoken to investors uh, whose tax lawyers have taken the view that swapping the GBTC ETF into a different Bitcoin ETF is a like-for-like swap, uh, even with the cash creates, uh, and therefore uh, not taxable. I'm not a tax attorney, but I'm telling you that uh, sophisticated investors have have told me that uh, there's a position that tax attorneys are taking. If that is true, we need to literally tell everyone so they'll stop selling their GBTC already. Come on. That, that, I mean, that would be an incredible hack if that is the case. Not something that I've heard, but it does make logical sense. Problem is the IRS generally doesn't make any uh, logical sense. Uh, Tom, I thought you had another comment, but I might have uh, missed it. No, I didn't. Just, just uh, listen on. Yeah, so... Uh, because Andrew, I can ask you... Can I, yeah, sure, sure. Can I, can I ask you a question? Scott, it's, the, it's the opposite on that yeah, one. If, you, if it is tax efficient... You'll sell your GBTC and buy something else. Cannot? Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent of the time, unless you literally need, unless you're trading with such size that uh, you need, you know, the fact that it's the one with twenty-three billion uh, rather than one billion or something. Like you need to move five hundred or six hundred million in and out or something. You would obviously still have to choose GBTC purely because of size. But I think that's uh, not really applying to many people. The um, by the way, I'm just looking at the comments. Uh, you're, you're apparently inspiring a lot of people to move off Vanguard. You know, you got uh, yesterday night. That's the account's name. I've moved my entire Vanguard account this morning, the morning of ETF. I had to call them to find out why the trades were not going through. Uh, so there's a very anti-Vanguard sentiment in the comments. But the question I have for you, Scott, and anyone else could jump in on this one. It's very simplistic questions. Like I don't understand how anyone could call the ETF launch. A failure when you got Bitcoin, which was an asset that wasn't even recognized as an asset just a few years ago, is now the second biggest ETF of any commodity, much bigger than silver. I think Bitcoin is at what thirty something billion, and then uh, silver is at eleven billion assets in management. Isn't that enough to say the ETF launch was a success? I think so. Um, you know, there's people obviously who will make the argument that since GPTC already had roughly 25 billion, that it's not apples to apples. But I think that uh, certainly the people who are in that we're seeing are making their choice, and they maybe are exiting or going to a different one. And so, yeah, I think that uh, if you, it's very if you, if you, every metric, every metric you look at, the volume of these is astounding. Balchunas had a tweet. Let, let me look really quickly. He, to put this in context, he said, another way to put the Bitcoin ETF flows in ETF context is how they stack up to all ETFs in past one-week flows. 
even after four days, two of them are in the top five and three in the top 10 up there with the studs VOO and QQQ. So you're talking about like QQQ obviously is the ETF for tracking the NASDAQ. And this is doing, you know, comparable uh, flows to that. And that's with multiple products. These are massively successful. But to answer your question, Mario, it's just simply because of price. That's all they're looking at. No, no, it's not only price. It's only price. I think that the point that, that Scott made that GBTC represents the majority of that. So we're sitting at $5 billion without GBTC. Um, but then it, when, do, when do Eric and, and James expect the ETF excluding GBTC to, uh, to beat uh, silver? What are the, the, uh, the predictions for the next few months? What do they expect it to reach? I, I I haven't I haven't actually seen that, but it's, it would be a great question. Yeah. I have no uh, idea. It, Maybe someone yeah, else here. Matthew, asked. Andrew, has anyone looked at what the predictions are for? Yeah, the we're we're at forty billion. I haven't looked at all. Like the work that we've done, we're at forty billion in net inflows over one to two years, which is based on an analysis of what GLD did and adjusted for the changes in money supply. Uh, so forty billion would put it you know right around where where silver is. Matthew, at a net inflow, is that like how how do you decide that it's net inflows versus total market cap of all the ETFs? That's the meaningful metric. Uh, well, because I think Bitcoin is going to go up a lot, right? So right. I just want to think about like what people are putting in in, cur in current fiat terms. Mario, I, I just want to share really quickly. I'm looking at a terminal uh, that I have that has all the ETF information effectively. And we have one of the indicators on here is the this from the tie, the daily G GBTC on-chain wallet outflows. So people are wondering just how much selling pressure there is. This is literally the, the Bitcoin that's being sent from Grayscale directly to Coinbase. So uh, on the 12th, uh, which was right when they launched, it was like 50... Million, but so this week the 16th was for 396.18 million major selling pressure. Then the 17th was the really big day we were all talking about, just south of 800 million, 791.98 million in Bitcoin sent from Grayscale to Coinbase. I think that happened on the 17th Wednesday because of T plus two one and T plus two. Someone else can correct me, but because of the settlement time and because Monday was a holiday. Probably the bulk of the selling from Thursday and Friday after the launch really started to hit and Grayscale then had to uh, sell that Bitcoin. Uh, and then the 18th, which is yesterday, 375.86, so slightly down from the 17th, about half actually. And then today we're at 164 so far. We, we don't know if we'll see more, but that's half of yesterday. So we could be on a trend here of it uh, trickling down the people who exited first that coming through the system now. And um, so, Matthew, I want to go back to what you said earlier. So what do you, what do you expect the assets under management to be by, let's say, end of next year for, for the all Bitcoin ETFs? And what are maybe if you know other predictions out there? Well, uh, so I just kind of put a put an average if you, we sum them all up. I, I, I haven't seen them. I haven't seen And them. have you guys come up with any predictions or be on a personal level? Um, well, I, I, I have a year end target of, for BTC of, uh, 80 K. Um, so I don't know, like maybe half, if half the flows come this year and, uh, the price doubles, then, you know, you're at 40 billion X, X, uh, and, and that assumes GBTC, you know, 
stabilizes at 20, I guess. So now we're looking at, uh, just to kind of put it into perspective for the audience, um, and I'll, I don't know who's just jumping in, I'll give you the mic right after, just want to put it into perspective for the audience. Um, all silver ETFs, I was just looking at the numbers, uh, are sitting at 13 billion. So you're looking at Bitcoin again, that was barely recognized as an asset a few years ago, will be almost four times, if we hit those targets, will be almost four times um, what silver is. And let's say Bitcoin's price remains the same, and then we'd still be, let's say, 40 divided by two at 20 would double what silver is. Now, we're a fair way away from gold, just kind of shows the potential upside as well. Gold is sitting at 226 billion. And then Bitcoin, um, as you said, you know, we expect it to be 40 billion, which I think is pretty realistic. Um, so, you know, 6x uh, potential upside. Uh, I'm not sure who's trying to jump in. So the guys go. quickly, Mario, but before someone jumps in, uh, just to update what I was just saying, the numbers that I was reading were as of uh, basically midnight last night. And we just saw a report that half an hour ago, uh, this report's from 50 minutes ago, so just over an hour ago, uh, 12,865 Bitcoin, that's 522 $29 million worth were transferred from the Grayscale Trust Address to Coinbase Prime. Grayscale Trust Address has transferred a total of 54,343 Bitcoin, which is $2.3 billion to Coinbase Prime during the opening hours of the US stock market for five consecutive trading days starting from January 12th. So we actually, to correct what I was saying before, now with the new data, there's an uptick. So it's another 500 million have been sent today. The, the GBT, the quote, the new GBTC trade is basically liquidation uh of that particular um uh that particular etf and the reason is it's very simple there there's there's probably three groups of folks that are in that particular product there's a bunch of genesis creditors that own it at size who are pissed off and are going to sell no matter what um, there are probably a bunch of folks that are cost conscious and the reason why they're cost conscious is because the fee for GBTC is 5x what plus what VanX or anybody else's is. That's that's insane, right? So anybody with a meaningful eye towards financial planning and has even a hint of a financial advisor in their life, they're going to get out of the product, right? And then there are folks that just want, want to sell to, to grab profits or not be associated um, with Grayscale because of their parent company. That's an enormous amount of sell pressure that's going to continue for a significant amount of time. There's also a reason why Grayscale and DCG set um, the fees at 1.5%. If they're smart, they assume that an enormous amount of assets under management are going to leave their camp, right? So if they just set it at 0.75 or 0.6 or 0.5, Right, they would they would be making the bet that the lion's share of the assets would stay. They didn't do that. They set it at five x everybody else. Why? Because they knew they were probably going to get cut in half in the first twelve months. I mean that that's just a that's a reasonable look at the landscape of GBTC, and it's not like there's going to be a significant deceleration of selling you know, in the next week or two or three, it's just going to continue. There, there's no reason for it not to continue. Andrew, um, what does that mean for price then? I mean, we, it's, uh, you know, I would say that it's held up astoundingly well considering how much supply we're seeing hit the market, but clearly it's starting to be <clears> a serious dent. Well, it, it, it's, you know, everybody talked about, you know, when the whole DCG debacle happened, and by the way, it's still ongoing from a court standpoint, 
Um, everybody talked about Reg M and could could uh, Grayscale be forced to liquidate? What what kind of you know response would would you know Bitcoin price have at that point? What would that do to the market? We're seeing that play out right now. It's just happening in a more measured way based on how the markets work with an ETF, right? We're going to see it again and again and again. And it's funny that, you know, Barry, uh, he he um, erased all of his tweets, right? But we, we should all go back and say, it's my turn, Sam, right? It's, it's his turn. So this is another version of that, is that uh, they set their, their fees at a number that anybody with a meaningful financial planning, you know, brain cell is going to bounce out of that product. Um, it's going to keep downward pressure on the price of Bitcoin and keep a cap on that pressure because unless there's some event with political, who knows, that busts through that amount of selling pressure on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, best case scenario, we trundle around, you know, baseline of 40, 41, 39, 42. It's just going to sit there, right? It's going to sit there for a while until this abates. Um, that would be my guess. I mean, they've, only got 20, they've only got $23 billion worth of Bitcoin left uh, <laughs> at $500 million to a billion a day. I mean, and let's be real. They're not going to exit at all, right? I mean, they're, no, they're, they're going to keep significant AUM. There's plenty of people who don't want to pay capital gains taxes on exiting GPTC. There's also plenty of people who literally just own GPTC and have not thought about any of this. Yeah, but my, my point is, is at minimum... There's probably a third of people that fall into those three categories that I right. just talked about. So if that's a third, you're talking about what? Eight billion dollars. Eight to nine billion dollars. Yeah. yeah. Eight to nine billion dollars, right? That that's that's pretty significant selling pressure. I see that Simon has his hand raised. I would like to uh, bring Simon into the discussion. I'm not the host here. But, uh, <laughs> Thank you for hosting, Andrew. <laughs> and my, yeah, my thanks. thanks for having no, me. You're good. Um yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. Um yeah, yeah let's Scott, Scott, hold on. Uh, Scott, let's put our hands up as well for when Andrew's ready. Mario, I'm going to have to meet you. Do wait till your turn. Um, the, the, yeah, the, I just want to point out the, the evil of what Digital Currency Group actually did. Um, and I know because Andrew's here. Um, but essentially, it used these arbitrage, Barry Silver, the genius structurer. Um, it uses arbitrage in order to dollarize all of the creditors out of their Bitcoin um, in these lending services. So you can lock in the dollar value of the debt they own to the creditors that had Bitcoin um, through the whole Genesis Gemini saga. Um, and then sit on the Bitcoin gains and keep the fees high within grayscale in order to knowing that a percentage of those would stay there for tax reasons. And so essentially, it really took everyone's Bitcoin gains and they used that in order to pay down the debt on the shitty investments that they made as a result of the whole 2022 deleveraging and saga. So it really was a re an evil thing. And so, you know, I do encourage, I know that it may have some negative impact on price while we go through this arbitrage. Um, but I think people should be supporting those that are taking a percentage of their fees and giving it to core developers and actually supporting Bitcoin rather than scamming people out of their Bitcoin gains. That's Just Bitwise and Van Eck, by the way. That's Bitwise and Van Eck for anybody who's, who's wondering. Yeah, sorry, uh, I didn't mention. Yeah. 
you, you, you can name names around here, Simon. Oh, oh, actually, Andrew, is it okay if we name names or um, should we not? That's yeah, host. go ahead. That, that's a policy I just approved this morning, so we're good. Okay, yeah. thank you. Thank you for the approval. <laughs> Zach, go ahead. I was going to say, I think the other axis on which if I were thinking about which ETF I'd want to go with, I mean, one of the factors is how much, like how deep pockets the issuer has, right? Because if something goes wrong, if there's an issue with custody uh, and you're in your BlackRock or Fidelity, you can afford to cover those shortfalls. Whereas the smaller ones, maybe there's some concern and, and that's an edge case that matters. But I do think that ideology is is important here. And so, look, it's great to support the smaller issuers that are supporting core devs if, if that's what you want to do. But even if you're choosing between the big guys, I think there's a real difference between Fidelity, which custodies its own Bitcoin, and you know the Fidelity digital assets team is ideologically pro-Bitcoin. They, they sort of get it if you read their research papers versus BlackRock, which invented ESG. And, you know, if there's a, a fork down the road or, you know, they could even be responsible for an ESG fork, uh, are you going to see the benefit of, of both sides of that? Um, so I think there are both selfish and, and ideological reasons why, even among the big guys, to prefer the, the Fidelity one over the BlackRock one. Yeah, I would encourage everyone to read. The, I, let me just jump in because I feel I've uh, got to defend myself here. Uh, I would encourage everyone to read the prospectus uh, around what the insurance levels are per cold wallet and what the limits are uh, with what with what the custodian can do. But I would argue that the Winklevoss twins, uh, if you read Bitcoin billionaires and, and how Gemini was originally set up uh, and the way that they approach uh uh, cold storage and the fact that they're regulated under NYDFS, uh, it, this is aligned as well with uh, Bitcoin's core values. That's all. Yeah, I just want to double thumbs up the Fidelity thing. I've seen Fidelity at Bitcoin conferences since 2014. They've been in this, they've been mining. And so as a TradFi financial institution, you know, they're um, on the on the buy side. I think they're, they're as Bitcoin as it gets on the TradFi side. That yeah, I guess another question. Because it, consider something other than BlackRock, maybe, if you're looking to allocate to one of these, right? Like, Vanek obviously has been on the right side of this for a long time. And I went to college with Gabor, and he's awesome. And I don't mean to denigrate the smaller issuers. But even if you don't want to be with one of the smaller issuers, like, maybe don't do BlackRock. But also, Jamie Dimon is still saying that Satoshi's going to come up and mine a few million Bitcoins. Satoshi. His name is Satoshi. He pronounced it like, wrong. Is, it's that like, like is that Binance? Yeah, it's Binance and Satoshi. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, so I, I think the key thing here is, so we're talking about advisors, about education and getting, you know, most people don't even look at the fees, right? It's through the advisors that they look at the fees. So it's all about distribution and incentives for these advisors to recommend these products. So I guess while we have Matt here on stage, could you guys, could you maybe just expand on your plans or um, how you guys are thinking about engaging with the advisor community or others who may recommend these products to the end consumers or actually get outflows? Yeah, so um, we've been actively engaged with advisors uh, and specifically the the wirehouses, the old, you know, the old fashioned Wall Street distributors of mutual funds and now ETFs. And those are our, typically our best relationships uh, and strongest clients. And those are the folks who uh, have been kind of ideologically unwilling to uh, let their clients have access to these products because of the Political implications, frankly, is is the root of, of a lot of it. Uh, and there's uh, a handful that you'll see uh, 
change by lowering minimums or making products available and integrating BTC into their asset allocation models uh, in the second half of this year. But then there'll be, as I kind of said at the onset, like some just no coiner organizations like Vanguard that that won't do it until leadership changes. So we've been saying all along that the the early flows here are going to be from from retail uh, and from kind of um, institutional managers who are will, will now change their own prospectuses so that they can buy Bitcoin. There's some 60-40 mutual funds out there, for example, that are now a- adding Bitcoin, but that the, the real advisor uh, funds are coming in more in the second half of the year. And it'll be some subset of, of those, like the UBSs that I mentioned, that uh, will be lowering their minimums. Uh, Hunter, I'm glad you just showed up uh, because I was about to literally say something that we spoke about last week and then you appeared in the audience. But you told me to that question that Tom just literally asked uh, to Matthew. You told me when we talked last week when they were launching that you guys had already had 20,000 phone calls. (laughs) Right? Yes. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was uh, over the course of 2023. We we had about 20,000 phone calls and meetings with uh, Financial advisors and, and traditional uh, traditional investors. So, um, uh, much like uh, Matthew, I imagine the work you do a lot of uh, a lot of blocking and tackling, um, and the conversations you know, often feel a little bit like being uh, being a, a teaching assistant for Bitcoin and um, help, helping people with wherever they're at and and whatever you know they're, they're working through in terms of thinking about making an investment. So. Um, we love doing that. It's really the only thing we do. Um, and, uh, and I'm incredibly excited by the conversations that have started, um, with these things launched. Um, of course, traditional investors don't, you know, they've got 99 other things to do, so they can't, they can't drop everything and clear their schedule, uh, just to make time to, uh, to buy a, a Bitcoin ETF 48 hours after it launches. But the, I, th- I think, uh, I just, I just heard a tidbit of what you were saying, Matt, and, uh, Matthew and uh, and uh, yeah, I think we're we're excited by the the audience that's opening up here. Do we have any concept for what percentage of people don't even have access to these products yet? Obviously, we mentioned like Vanguard yeah. and Merrill and all this, but uh, I've got to imagine a huge swath of the population just can't buy these yet. It's 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 huge. Um, I believe. Uh, you know, we, 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 do, we do a survey. We've done a survey of advisors every year for the last six years. Um, I feel ancient, but um, the most recent one came out in, um, maybe two weeks ago. And we asked uh, advisors, do you have access to crypto? And I think that they, I think it was something like 20 percent. 19. Um, thought they had. Was it 19? Is that right? Yeah, 19. I've studied that yeah. study. I, I've referenced it so many times, and you're turning blue in the face. Yeah, I mean it's 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 uh, it's really low. And and the other thing that is so fascinating about that number is that the reality is actually probably higher. You know, there was there was another fascinating number in there that over sixty percent of advisors didn't think a Bitcoin ETF would launch, even just weeks prior. So I, you know, I think the right mental model for a lot of people on uh, on advisors is that it's a little bit like if you imagine your your um, you know your your uncle or your or your cousin or something. They're 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 not necessarily as focused on Bitcoin as the rest of us. Um, not out of negligence, just out of uh, them having a lot of other responsibilities. They're getting a call from a client today who needs help with something going on in the family, or needs help initiating a wire, or 
you know, they have a meeting about what the Fed's going to do on rates. They have a meeting about rotating into uh, the the great um, the great Van Eck Gold Miners Fund uh, for this part of the market. Um, uh, so so the, there's just a lot for them to to juggle. But I, I there actually I was exchanging emails with with one of the top advisors in the country, and he said, "Wow, I didn't realize it had launched, and it was three days after it launched." Um, so uh, that that's going to change, uh, but. Um, but they're not not as up to speed as uh, as everyone um, in crypto town hall. Yeah, uh, broadly speaking, uh, we kind of started the conversation with whether these were a success or not. I think we have kind of consensus amongst us that we think they're a great success. But like looking back, I guess on the eight days since they've launched, how do you sort of appraise uh, this versus your expectations as you know uh, up or down? Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think by ETF standards, it's in sort of the top echelons of the history of launches. Um, so through that dimension, uh, a success. Um, I think. I think that uh, setting that aside and uh, anecdotally, the response from our client base, the fact that you know, some of them have already made allocations um, in 48 hours has been stunning. And even some of the largest firms in the country have, have, have prioritized this and are having meetings uh, this week about it um, or plan to have meetings in the, in the next month or so. Uh, the banks are moving pretty quickly. So uh, I think it's a, it's a resounding success. I think that the time scale of this audience, you know, I, I think crypto wants to uh, wants the mainstream to embrace the vision and the asset that all of us have seen for a long time. Uh, but part of what makes the mainstream the mainstream is that they just they move at a different pace, um, and uh, and I think it's a it's a different um, you know it's it's a different uh, sort of um, speed than than crypto is used to. Uh, but but uh, it, I, we're incredibly excited by the the response we're seeing, and um, I think this is a train that is going to run for a long time. I mean. Um, the fact that that a few products are are at the size that they're at uh, now is very exciting, but it will keep going. Um, the The one other thing that I think has been fascinating uh, that people may have followed is that uh, there's been a lot of activity right now with people selling GBTC and buying uh, other products. Our product is BITB um, uh, to lower their fee in their IRA uh, or to lower the, the fee on their Bitcoin exposure. Um, and, and that has been, I would guess, maybe 50, 60, 70, 80% of the action. If you look at um, the flows, I think it's something like 2.8 billion into the, uh, the new funds and 2.2 or 2.3 out of GBTC. You know, if you net that, you get maybe half a billion or north of that of, of net new dollars. Um, but I think the first movers and the first, this is the sixth day of trading. Uh, there's been a lot of really fast action from GBTC holders. I think that that will shift. I think we will shift towards more uh, net new investors over the coming few weeks here. Uh, but again, as, as I said, they just need, they just need a, bit of, uh, a bit of time to get organized. Yeah, and hopefully we'll see a slowing then of the GPTC aggressive sellers too, you know, who we're looking yeah, to we, get out from the beginning. There hasn't been any meaningful flows from a traditional asset allocation type of conversation within the ranks of financial advisors. Like that 
that that will come over time that will come you know quarter by quarter that 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 will come as we hit you know certain velocities uh, and and clients are bringing it up at asset allocation type of meetings we haven't gotten anywhere near that type of of the conversation and so you know agreeing with hunter over time I don't think the it's interesting dynamic that a good portion of the GBTC, you know, sales are pushing into the other products that that's an obvious point. Um, But it's interesting that that is that will probably bridge the gap to these asset allocation timeframes. And then the the uh, deposits and the inflows will pick up from there and only grow. Um, You know, there's there's somebody on Twitter. Dead Kate Bounce, she's been in traditional ETFs for a long, long time, and then it's in the Solana ecosystem now. Um, I know her and know that she's, you know, did did a great job in TradFi, and I've got a long history in TradFi. The the her her commentary, she's got a thread that's pinned um, about the long term effects of ETF and them existing on platforms. So if you think about it something like 60 to 70% of all financial advisors would be considered independent. So there are RIA type of, of organizations. And there's about three to four platforms that they use as their backend type of, of custody foundation, right? So when you get to a point where the RIAs of the world are including Bitcoin and Bitcoin ETFs as a one, three, 5% type of allocation conversation, on a quarterly basis with clients, that's never going to stop. Like when that starts, that doesn't stop. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to say nothing, you know, like the Merrill Lynch's, the UBS's, uh, the Morgan Stanley's, that's the smaller subsection of financial advisors. It's about 20 to 25% of all the financial advisors in the United States. The bigger portion are your independent RIA type of advisors um, that exists across the country and are committed to, you know, uh, the fiduciary standard associated with uh, putting clients in the best possible product based on, you know, the allocation that suits them. Um, it's not about, um, you know, what what makes them the most money, right? So uh, the allocation to Bitcoin, that's going to happen over time in waves, quarter by quarter. You'll probably see blips in quarterly adjustments to inflows based on those over the next 6, 9, 12, 18 months. But it's not going to stop. It's only going to slowly kind of that, – that the spigot will slowly continue to turn a little bit more, yeah. a little more open, a little more open, a little more open. Yeah. I agree. agree, agree ahead, I'm things you said. Sorry. No, no, no. You go, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, you know, I think for anyone who is anticipating that all of a sudden every RA in America was going to get their clients, in, you know, 1% of no. their portfolio into Bitcoin in the first week. Uh, it's just nonsense. Right? I would that, like that, to mention that Simon has his hand up again. I just, I just said, dude, you, know. you don't have to mention his hand up. You just call on him as our host. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, then Dave. <laughs> Dave has two. I, I actually had a question. Um, Scott was talking about the inflows from uh, to to Coinbase uh, to go to the other ETFs. Isn't GBTC custing at Coinbase as well? Um, and does anyone know whether each ETF will have like their own 
segregated custody service because obviously one of the interesting things about fidelity is they're doing their own custody and it seems like we are chucking a bunch of money at, at, at coinbase and creating a really big um honeypot here um does anyone know the, the whether they have their own yeah, segregated the, the, custody yes yeah uh, uh i believe eight out of the 11 etfs uh custody with coinbase custody trust company this is a subsidiary that is separate and different than the brokerage, than the app. Uh, the, the Coinbase Custody Trust Company is regulated as a, as a bank with a trust charter in New York. Uh, the, the accounts are segregated and held in cold storage. It's not a hot wallet environment. Um, they are the largest Bitcoin custodian in the world with the longest track record. Um, and you know, I think, I think with any custodian, even if you use Fidelity's custodian or you use Gemini's or Anchorage's or BitGo's, and there's a lot of great, uh, custodians these days. I don't know if everyone remembers back when it was just Kingdom Trust and Zappo, um, on the, on the qualified custodian side. Um, but it's really come a long ways and I think it'll, it'll keep advancing. But, um, yeah, uh, what, what I was asking is if, um, is yeah. if each ETF, yeah, has its own custody set up, segregated within Coinbase custody, where they might have like a multi sig or something. I don't know if anyone knows, like, or whether everyone's subject to the same setup within that one trust company. Yeah, uh, uh, each each ETF should have have a segregated uh, set of wallet addresses. It's a great question. It's a great question, and that's the answer, Dave. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at outflows, it's really important that that we also understand that there were huge outflows from the CME futures uh, during the last you know week and a half. I mean, about thirty eight hundred contracts by my dead reckoning, and the and it shows up both in obviously the open interest collapsing, but also the simple fact that the premium that people have been willing to pay, which I've talked about on this this show multiple times, uh, has reverted from double or quadruple what a calculation of fair value to somewhere around fair and sometimes be even below fair. So it's kind of moving around a lot now. That's a lot of money. That's like $600 million worth of Bitcoin and actually more. Uh, that was at 3000 So anyway, it's a fair amount. And that adds and the marginal buyer and seller is what matters here. So sure, people are going to sell out of you know, uh, I made a, a tweet this morning. The other point is, is once you have an asset that is tradable, people will trade it. And you know, every study that's ever been done says greed is 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 a big factor, but fear is far worse. And it, it should be noticed that all the normal people who like to dance on Bitcoin's grave and are almost invariably the perfect predictors of when a bottom is, have all started chirping over the last two days. And so don't understand that, that these people don't understand the importance of the narrative that uh, our friends from Bitwise that you know, Hunter was talking about and others, uh, that this narrative change is a big deal. And it's only it's literally the beginning of the narrative change. This is a multi-year kind of deal. But if we're all dealing with an asset class that we think needs global adoption and mainstreaming to get to, you know, 10, 20 X from where we are. Well, this is the beginning. It doesn't mean it's going to go in a straight line. And for sure, it won't. That's all. Dave, how closely are you tracking uh, the GBTC outflows or the sort of relationship between inflows and outflows? I mean, it's, it's hard to track because, look, the thing is, is we don't know. There's information we don't know. And I'm not going to call up my, my friends at, at, at 
<laughs> you know, at grayscale and, and, and think that they could answer. Because, look, the, the, the trade that Ryan Selk has dubbed the Widowmaker was huge. We know an enormous amount of the open interest or the holders of GBTC were in it for the arbitrage at the end, but were originally in it for the other arbitrage that got trapped in it. And so we do not know who holds all of that stuff. And most of that stuff was hedged completely, meaning you could see outflows and it wouldn't matter because there would be spot or derivatives on the other side of it. We don't know how much of the percentage of the liquidations we're seeing are that, that trade being unwound vis-a-vis -vis people like me who have GBTC and taxable and non-taxable accounts. The non-taxable is going to stay there. I mean, the, the taxable is going to stay there until I decide I want to sell Bitcoin. And it, which, as you could probably guess, is is not very likely. Never. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say never because there's a price for anything, Scott. We all know that. <laughs> but, you know, not now. So we'll leave it that way. And but it, on Monday, I'm gonna on, on Macro Monday, I'm asking you what your price is, by the way. So just get ready. No for that. problem. And, and I'll answer it and, it and it will piss off Mike. Uh, but that's OK. Uh, in, in any case, it, the point is that we don't know the composition. So all we can do is see what's coming out, what's actually being sold. So when it's being transferred to Coinbase and being sold, what we don't know is if someone is on Binance Futures getting rid of a position on the other side that's hedging it, right? We, we just don't know that. And, and only, the only people who do know that are the people who are doing it. So it's really hard to track that. So the answer is, no, I'm not paying that much attention, but we are looking at pressure. And, and to be honest, I mean, we've just seen a retracement that is classic. I mean, literally, we're almost directly in the middle of the first and second Fibonacci retracement levels. And I know you, you talk about it with your chart guys all the time, but we had a run from 25 from the day that BlackRock announced to 48. And, and just look at it. it, it and, and by the way, it's, on, it's getting slower and slower. And you know, liquidations, you know, over the last day, we saw 250 million in liquidations. That's a pretty large number. Uh, it feels like the flush is mostly done. That, that's the way I would look at it. Andres, I lift I'll just add to that. I'll just add to that that the the most profitable um, technical strategy for Bloomberg uh, on Bloomberg they they track like fifteen different uh, either trend following or contrarian technical strategies. The most profitable strategy over the last two years just flashed to green. Uh, it's been a while, uh, so uh, you know I'm not saying we're we're definitely going higher, but uh, that one has a pretty good track record. Um, Matthew, do you think the ETF, uh, I think Hong Kong, there's a new application VSFG uh, just applied or is about to, uh, is aiming for to apply for a spot Bitcoin ETF? I think there's a movement in South Korea as well to try to get one approved. Could those have much of an impact on the markets or really it's just the US leads it all and the rest won't have much of an impact? I think Hong Kong would be pretty important. Not sure about South Korea. Yeah, I saw also that, uh, and Singapore said no, by the way. I think that was just on the tape yesterday or today. Um, why I mean, did that, they that, say, be, what, why did they say no? Did they say why? Uh, I just saw the headline that there won't be a Singapore listed one, but lots of Singaporeans have access to U.S. brokerage accounts. Okay, and your thoughts on, on South Korea and, and Hong Kong? I think it's helpful. Like, I, I, it, even if we get some weakness uh, here because of the lumpiness of GBT selling and kind of pre-having jitters, miners are really underperforming. Coin, like the equities are are really underperforming. Uh, uh, 
Uh, our DAP ETFs down 28% year to date. Uh, Coinbase is down 28% year to date. Um, so it, it, even if that kind of choppy trading continues into the halving, the second quarter uh, post halving with the possible Asian ETFs adding fuel to that fire, um, you know, that's where things can really get interesting. Question is from what level that starts. Yeah, Mario, I mean, we've had the, the, the American United States spot ETFs aren't the first, right? We all know that they've existed in Europe, Canada, South America. So uh, it's pretty clear, I think, that uh, the big boys are the United States. But it is worth noting that all over the world, they don't generally have access to ours. Right. Yeah, I was also I was also surprised that East Asia, um, that Singapore, South Korea don't have an ETF. Um, maybe not surprising to you guys, but I thought they'd be they'd be ahead of us, especially considering the sentiment. Remember when you went to East uh, to to the Singaporean event, uh, twenty forty nine, you were talking oh, about yeah. how uh, the sentiment is very different. There. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But for an, it was surprising for me to know that they didn't have an ETF in Singapore, just rejected uh, the application. So, Hunter, did you have Mario, okay, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was just saying, Mar Mario is a great, a great question, and and Matthew, I think you made a, a great point there. The U.S. ETF market is the largest in the world by a factor of ten. Um, it's it is absolutely uh, head and shoulders above the rest. Part of part of that is many other markets can buy U.S. ETFs. I think that you're seeing outflows in the European ETF. Bitcoin ETF market right now is some are rotating into the US one. So the good news is that there are a lot of non-US investors who can buy these products. And so the, the launch of Bitcoin ETFs in the US uh, open up access to Bitcoin through the ETF format, even, even outside of the US. But also, I would say in terms of uh, just the popularity of the products, it's, it's a different order of magnitude. Uh, the US is really the big prize um, and uh, you know tens of trillions um uh market so uh the fact my, that it's my, finally arrived i think is is a huge a huge deal i agree now my, my question more is from a symbolic nature if you get a, an etf approved in uh, South yeah. Korea, maybe it's not as important, but hong kong i thought was pretty important symbolically yeah that makes makes total sense that's a great thought by the way manta launched yesterday I'm just going through the news didn't they have a ddos attack or something immediately is D, did you say ddos uh, did you really just, uh, it's called DDoS, man. It's called DDoS, not DDoS. <laughs> and, and and then and then China and China uh, China forms a metaverse uh, did, working uh, group. Did they have a DDoS attack? A DDoS. <laughs> oh, DDoS. DDoS. You guys don't know about did the DDoS. DDoS. <laughs> then, DDoS. Uh, okay, <laughs> boomer. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm, this is, I'm just going through the news. Go ahead, Hunter. In uh, uh, Matt Hogan, our, our CIO, was uh, in the, the U.S. ETF space for, for 20 years. He wrote the CFA's uh, uh, book on, um, on ETFs. And he, he likes to remind me that in, in the early 2000s, ETFs themselves were so new um, in the U.S. that people used to call them EFTs, um, which, uh, which I thought I would submit uh, as we're, we're mispronouncing, uh, mispronouncing acronyms. Um, but I, I, if I can just chime in with one, one other thing, I would say, you know, I think Dave, Dave kind of hit on this. Um, it's about to be an unbelievable year. I, I think that there, are, I, you know, I've heard from some clients who are disappointed that, that Bitcoin is, uh, is not up at the moment. Um, you know, I can't remember when, when we crossed 40,000 in the fall, it wasn't that long ago, but, um, this is a structural development that is going to be 
uh, an amazing boon and tailwind to the space for a very long time. So uh, I just want to have said that as uh, you know, uh, a, a bitwise person uh, here and um, make sure that I made the comment that uh, I, I really, you know, I really think this is an extraordinary thing. And day to day, there's there's some choppiness as the market uh, learns this new market participant. D- Dave also commented on um, the futures. There, there's a big, you know, w- I think when most people think about the market, they think about the retail trade, they think about leverage, um, occasionally a big new institutional buyer. The ETFs represent a whole new class of citizens in uh, in the flows and in the markets. You have the market makers who are hedging creations and redemptions and stepping into the futures markets. Um, you have the ETFs themselves, our, our portfolio management team. I've been tweeting about it um, most days. Our, our portfolio management team you know, goes into the market to buy Bitcoin at a, a sp- in a specific window of time. All of that, you know, means that there's some some new dynamics relative um, to the the flows in the space day to day, and and I think it'll over the next few days the market will continue to sort of process that that new player and that new constituent. But um, you know, zooming out, I, I just think this is one of the biggest steps forward uh, for our space in uh, in a long time. So. Uh, I I just want to convey uh, a lot of enthusiasm for for what this means for the space that we've all sort of believed in and, and committed a large part of our lives to uh, for a while. Um, I think I think it's going to be a great, a phenomenal uh, year. Hunter, I have a before going to Tiger. I see his hands up. We also have David and Zach. Maybe give us a kind of a. We never did a legal recap. We've talked about Coinbase. Um, I had a question on that, but also any other other other, other important cases that we probably missed uh, while doing, while running while hosting the show. So, David, Zach, that's my general question for you. Uh, but Hunter, before going to Tiger. Um, when I ask you about the markets, it's something we've asked many speakers in the past. Is um, the, the 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 narrative that the Bitcoin halving will be the start of a uh, of the the next bull market has kind of become a, a self fulfilling prophecy in a way. But there was an argument made in one of our spaces that once institutions come in, now with the ETF approved, they don't care about the halving. For them, the halving is 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 not is not part of their calculations. Which means for the first time, it's not the crypto community that's going to lead the next bull market. It's going to be the institutions, the traditional markets. And for them, they're not waiting for the halving. Um, would love to get your thoughts on that particular point. Yeah, I think that's I think that's such a salient point. You know, this this new constituent, the ETF constituent, um, is is less of an enthusiast, and that that's not a criticism of Bitcoin. That's if people are familiar with uh, with uh, the framework of crossing the chasm, that is just a, a phenomenon of moving from early adopters to the mainstream. The mainstream is by definition just less. Uh, ingrained um, with all of the the same things um, that uh, I think early adopters um, are plugged into. So I, I think it's right that it will not be as in focus uh, for many of the the buyers of the ETF. But we we talk about it with clients, um, and so, you know, so it might be a third or or half. Um, but but I do think it will dilute uh, dilute the impact of that narrative a bit. Having said that, of course, um, the ETF buyer notices prices. So if the early adopter and the community um, is pricing in the having, and that causes prices to go higher, uh, the traditional investment community is most sensitive to prices. So 
um, in an indirect way, even if they don't know why the price is going higher, if the price goes higher, they will ask more questions to understand what they're seeing on the statement. Um, so I, I think it'll be slightly dilutive to the, the power of that narrative, but through that indirect uh, uh, vector will still be absorbed um, uh, by the, the and, traditional. And, and, and do you think, there. do you think now that we've been institutionalized is Bitcoin, could you still consider Bitcoin a, a non-correlated asset? So that non-correlation has been diluted as well. No, I, I think I think I think non-correlation absolutely, and that that's that's part of the attraction for many of the traditional investors. You know, the traditional investor, uh, they conventionally buy sixty percent equities, forty percent bonds. I was actually just arguing about this with someone the other day. He was like, "Why don't I just go long uh, the S and P? It outperforms bonds." Um, and what the advisor would say is, "Well, the bonds have a low correlation, and so you give up a bit of return." But you get uh, you get the comfort and peace of mind of knowing that not everything will go down at the same time. Uh, that is sort of the the bread and butter of modern portfolio theory, uh, which is the you know sort of subject matter of of most investment professionals. So they definitely care about the the correlations. Correlations have come down substantially over the last twelve months, um, and I I think that low correlations. Uh, are here to stay. I, you know, ultimately, Bitcoin doesn't care about low employment uh, numbers. Uh, Bitcoin doesn't care about you know uh, corporate earnings reports um, uh, in the S and P. Um, so I think that Bitcoin does care about hash rate. Uh, Bitcoin does care about adoption use cases. Um, so I, I think that those those things are underpinning drivers. Uh, the having uh, that will you know influence Bitcoin. Uh, and don't influence stocks uh, or bonds. And conversely, some of the things that influence stocks and bonds won't influence Bitcoin. And I think that, that is the underlying reason why correlations over a reasonable time period should be low. And I think they're, you know, them being low is a very, very, very valuable aspect. If you think about hedge funds, um, uh, you know, hedge funds often underperform the NASDAQ. And you can say, well, then why does anyone invest in hedge funds? They invest for low correlations. Um, so, the traditional investor wants a few features out of an investment. They don't just want returns. They, they're interested in returns, but they're also interested in making investments that have low correlations to the rest of their investments. Um, and so that <coughs> is actually a killer feature of, of Bitcoin and crypto to many traditional investors. There was a BlackRock study. I think it was a year and a half or two years ago that literally came out, I'm going to have to find it, that said that the ideal portfolio construction when looked just, I think, through the lens of a sharp ratio and idiosyncratic risk was like 86% Bitcoin. I don't know if you guys saw that, but this literally came from BlackRock long before they filed for a spot ETF that when you looked I, at I, it, actually, I that was... I did, I did see that. I will say that that stuff like that makes traditional investors sort of Nonsense. fall out of their chair. Uh, yeah, it's, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, I saw that. Uh, I, I I have to hop, but I just want to say I, I love I love Crypto Town Hall, and, and you guys do an amazing job with this, and and uh, it's uh, it's going to be an amazing year, and um, grateful to be part of this community. So thanks for um, hopping thanks, on, man. We really, really appreciate it. Really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Tiger, what's up, everybody? Um, yeah, just a few things. I mean, I think everyone's super focused on this ETF and like. This thing has been around for like a week. Like, let's all just relax. Like, I think, no, no, like, I think <laughs> everyone is calculating 
so much from like such little data. I I and knew I knew Tiger. I knew when I brought. I, I knew it. Every day you get <laughs> fucking Bitmax with the report. I'm like, I don't care about the one day, man. Uh, but um, yeah, in the short run, I think Scott is about to block you, man. It's, I think everyone Scott, needs to shut don't up block and Scott. Relax. And number two, like everyone on Twitter is like <laughs> schizophrenic about the big about Bitcoin going down. Like this is is this like your first run, man? Like everyone's like 35k. I'm like, okay, great. Guess what? That's like in line with like corrections during bull markets. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? And the problem is, is most people on Twitter, no offense, don't have much money. So they take 500 bucks and they put 50x leverage. So every time it moves 1%, everyone loses their shit. So everyone needs to calm down. All right. Uh, and I think that what's not often being discussed with the ETFs is that passive flows suppress volatility. Utility, right? Like in the last 15 years, you know, you've had uh, the advent of passive flows from, you know, um, just your mom and pop investors. Where's the VIX, right? The VIX has been suppressed for 15 years for that reason. So I don't think anyone is discussing that. So I think the volatility in Bitcoin over a longer period of time will be suppressed. Um, I don't think anyone is really discussing that. Cool. I think the, the the first part of what you said has been extremely valuable. I appreciate the insight there. Um, I do want to go. I do want to go to Zach and David. I'm being sarcastic, Tiger. It's good to have you, um, Zach. David, just kind of Zach. I know you wanted to jump in, but also get a quick legal yeah. recap. I know we're going to wrap up soon, but I know we're all waiting for the. Actually, the question I had for you is: When do we expect Coinbase's uh, um, decision to be made regarding the dismissal? And is there other legal cases that we're not paying attention to that we should? Because I expect a lot, a lot more from the DOJ and the SEC, unless they, they should be expected over the next 12 months. You know, it's kind of after the, the Coinbase, Binance, you know, and a few other big ones, XRP, et cetera. We had the, the NFT, a couple of NFT ones as well. It's been relatively quiet, unless it hasn't been, we just haven't, we haven't noticed it. Yeah, so, I would say one to four months probably to get this decision. Uh, I think the this case, along with the Binance and Kraken cases, really is what people ought to be paying attention to in crypto right now. This is really the ball game. These are directly on the question of is secondary trading in you know the most popular tokens uh, illegal securities transactions? And so, like this is really you know can we have crypto in the United States is going to hinge on the outcome of these sort of marquee cases. Uh, I think one thing that we uh, previously when we discussed the case, we talked about the main issue here, which is about the secondary trading of, you know, tokens like Solana and Axie Infinity and stuff like that. Uh, I think it's very, very unlikely that those get dismissed uh, at this first stage in the case. I think what's more interesting to look for when we get the opinion is some of the other questions that are up to the judges aside that have more of a likelihood of getting dismissed. One of them is the question around staking. Right. And so, you know, under the Howey test, the question is, you know, when you staking Ethereum, when you're actually running a validator node, I don't think anyone thinks is engaging in a securities transaction. You're providing a service validation to the Ethereum network. You get rewarded if you do that honestly. You get slashed if you do it dishonestly. Um, but like that's not a securities transaction. And then the next question is if a company like Coinbase is facilitating the staking for you, right? They are doing the pools, they're making sure that they're validator node has uptime. Is that the kind of managerial efforts that turn your giving them your ETH to stake 
into a securities offering in the form of their staking services. And that's, a, I think, more of a purely legal question, whether the work they're doing is administrative, which would make it not a securities offering, or managerial, which would make it a securities offering. That's something we might see the judge rule on. That's going to be really important for the DeFi and restaking ecosystem, the way that comes out. And then the other question that I think a lot of folks are not focusing on is the question around Coinbase's wallet, which allows you to interact with DEXs. The question is, is that effectively an exchange or because it's non-custodial that it's a it's a separate thing altogether? And so those are those are sort of two of the, you know, Coinbase adjacent to the sort of main question around the trading of tokens that I think is, is really important. We might get a, a motion dismiss ruling on. And one more question, maybe David, you could take that one as well, David. Uh, comment on what Zach just said, but also on the PYUSC PayPal stablecoin. I think the SEC's uh, allegedly has been reports that the SEC is looking into it. I'm not sure if you have more information on this. So I, you know, I kind of laugh because Meta Lawman and I were at the hearing yesterday, and the Coinbase hearing was weird. It sounded like Coinbase One. It felt like Coinbase One. It looked like Coinbase One. And I walked out, and the only thing I said to James, Meta Lawman, was, I kind of feel like I'm at a strip club right now, and the stripper's in love with me. Because at the end of the day, everyone felt like the same thing, like they were, this was heaven for the uh, vacuum of crypto Twitter, that this was exactly what everyone wanted. And we just all walked out and we were like, wow, this was so one-sided. And I think what Zach just said is really true. No one is betting that, and it's going to take the one to three months Zach just said, but none of the lawyers who walked out yesterday were like, this is what the this is what people who aren't lawyers are going to miss in this. Even though everything sounded like Coinbase won, Coinbase isn't going to win the motion to dismiss. They're not, she's not going to dismiss the whole thing outright. She's going to keep bits and pieces. I think she's going to keep most of the case going, just like they did in Ripple, and then summary judgment shall knock the whole thing out. The judge was clearly concerned yesterday about being precedential. She wanted to, she wants, she wants to combine what Rakoff did, what Torres did. She wants to be someone who stays in her lane. She very much did, you know, the major questions doctrine, which is legal mumbo jumbo for saying that, you know, the court doesn't, the court is, has the right to say, no, this is a congressional thing. She clearly didn't like that. She clearly was, she was so well prepared yesterday. And I think that's the craziest thing for a crazy week in crypto. And from my perspective, this is, I'm not even talking about the ETFs. You guys have covered that ad nauseum. It's what you, it's, it's the biggest thing in crypto, but for a crazy week in crypto, all of these, uh, like blockchain association, coin center, they all did amicus briefs for the Coinbase case to say Coinbase is doing nothing wrong. There's no SEC jurisdiction. And the judge was buying it. She was quoting these briefs from the industry like they were gospel. And that is such a big difference and shows how far we've come, where in the week the ETFs became legal, that a judge was quoting all of the policymakers in crypto and the crypto Twitter vacuum as if they were gospel. It was amazing. It really was. Uh, the other really big thing that no one's talking about this week from a legal perspective is the IRS walking back the mandatory reporting of digital asset transfers over $10,000.
I mean, people should be, that was a really big thing for people in crypto that the IRS walked that back because a lot of people, I mean, I'm going to Satoshi Roundtable and at Satoshi Roundtable, Bruce of all people was like, I can't take uh, Bitcoin anymore because of the reporting requirements. And it was incredible that the IRS walked that back this week um, because look, it was, it was an impractical reporting requirement with a required extensive reporting from almost everyone in crypto besides who Tiger was speaking about, the kid who leverages his $500, 50X for real people conducting business. That was a really big deal. And from a legal perspective, the IRS throwing up their hands and saying, ah, we made a mistake. It's in the bill, but we're not going to do it. I think that's great, a great sign for crypto long term. And the third thing I thought was really cool in crypto this week from a legal perspective Everyone knocking around Senator Warren for her letter saying all these uh, lobbyists and people in power saying that, oh, they're bad people for jumping on the crypto bandwagon. And everyone giving shots to Senator Warren saying these guys are legal patriots. They're still patriots. And moving forward, you know, they are doing what's best for this country by protecting people on digital assets. It just shows that the needle's moving in the direction of digital assets which I think is fantastic for everyone. Oh, David, I'm just yeah, kidding. Wait, 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 that was a great recap. Tiger, don't ruin it. No, Tiger, don't ruin it. We're ending Mario, the you're a robot. Mario, you're a robot. I'm not, a, I'm not actually going to ruin it. Hold on, David. You should look up Coinbase's lawyer. That's the only alpha you need. You should look up William Sabbath. Okay? They're going to get the best fucking deal you've ever seen, man. Okay? They're winning. But they're not winning on the motion to dismiss. No, That's no, just no, not that, not that, not that. I'm just saying that in the context of quote unquote winning, and winning could be a fine and like okay, they improve listing standards. All right, fine, and maybe like they have to add some more risk of disclosures and whatnot. But look up William Sabbath. That's all you need to know. All due respect, as good as a lawyer as he is, like that does not mean Coinbase is going to prevail on the idea that none of the tokens that are listed are investment contracts, right? That is the core claim by the SEC, that at least one of these tokens is a security. But can we... It was trading on Coinbase, which is not a registered securities exchange, and so Coinbase is violating the law. Like, it's a big stretch to say they're going to win on all of them. Yeah, so, so guys, do you think it will at least... Will, will at, least, at least we'll get clarity on what is a security, what is not, something we've been looking for for many years now. Is that fair yeah, to say? Definitely and it's, it's, and get that. No. You won't get that clarity. Not, to, not, not from this case. Not, we might get some clarity that some of these tokens are securities from the judge. We might get some, you know, refinement of like judicial precedent about how the Howey test applies to crypto. That would be great. That'd be a good step forward. But in terms of like actual clarity about what the line is, I don't think we're going to get that unless we get like actual laws passed or, you know, there are many, many more court cases down uh, the road. Joe, we're not going to get clarity from uh, one case. Uh, uh, I, think, I think we've got another lawyer that disagrees with you. I know you want to end it, Scott, but it's getting interesting. Joe's never sent me so many emojis at once. Um, so let me, he's connecting now because I thought we'd be getting that clarity and, and uh, for you to say otherwise, Zach, is a bit surprising. And, and, and Joe, would you agree with Zach that we won't get the clarity we're all looking for? Because that's important, at least for me on, on, a, on, a, on a selfish level. So most people, when they talk about clarity, they mean a uniform bright line rule that can be applied in every circumstance. And I think what Zach is alluding to, which he's correct on, is that the whole purpose 
of Howie is to provide a flexible standard, which 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 with uh, which which can be assessed against multiple different innumerable situations. Okay, where you know you could have all different types of schemes and contracts that could coexist and have flexibility in an approach for a judge to decide it based on the particular facts and circumstance. So, I don't think you get a bright line rule from this case. This is definitively not a security. This arrangement here is definitively not a security. Now, what you have is you have more precedent, which is a big advantage, right? If you have a case law in a landmark case that explains, okay, here's something that pushes the, uh, the needle, that puts a thumb on the scale, however you want to put it, towards it's more likely true than not true. It is not falling under an investment contract. Um, that's really helpful for the industry. And, and to say that it's not, I think it dis discounts it too much. But it's also correct to say that we're not going to have absolute clarity with a bright line rule following this case, every single token or every single circumstance moving forward. And that's that's how you reconcile those two thoughts. And by the, and by the way, I'll, I'll jump in for one more second on what Joe says, because I agree with him. It's really important, especially for people in our industry, we don't want the courts making the rules. It is literally an abomination that the courts would be making the rules for crypto. We need the regular we need the government to tell the regulators to do their job. For those who believe the SEC have the power to do this, and for people like us in the Twitter vacuum who believe the SEC doesn't have the power to do this, we need the clear rules to come from Congress, not from the courts. It's really bad when things come from the courts rather than from our elected leaders. But but why are they coming from the courts? They're coming from the courts because our Congress is dysfunctional and can't get anything passed. And I think from the industry's perspective, that is probably a good thing, right, David? I mean, wouldn't you agree that they would rather the Congress not speak on some of these issues uh, so that there's still this opaqueness that allows at least certain participants to continue in doing what they're doing? Yeah, but I've been here since 2012. So, you know, I'm as... I'm as close to OG as you can be in this space without being actual OG. And, you know, I used to get up in the early conferences and say, don't steal money. And, you know, the law will take care of the rest. Um, the opaqueness needs to disappear because these are becoming every single day more in, entwined into society. And as they become more entwined, I believe that, you know, it... It, it Congress is we. That's a political conversation that Congress is at a standstill and can't accomplish anything. I think there are a lot of people who are advocating to elect people who are pro crypto. I believe you know Vivek before he dropped out was you know very pro crypto. I think everyone's talking about crypto on the federal level. I think it's going to slowly work its way down. I do hope before I retire, you know, in 10, 20 years that this is not opaque in the courts. I think clarity is good, but true clarity, and this is where I 100% agree with what you were saying, Joe, true clarity will only come through actual uh, congressional uh, and federal law. Cool. I think on that point, uh, Scott, I know you wanted to end it like 20 minutes ago because you're being lazy today, but I think it was a great, I love the debate at the end. And I think we should do this every time, Scott. Remember to do it every time. So ask out, because we, we just get an incredible panel every time unplanned. Just ask him, what are your recaps for the day or for the week that we missed? I think it's a question we should always ask. What are the important things that happened today or this week that we missed? Because I think David and Zach gave us a good uh, a uh, good reason to always do this and the answer was great so uh, on that note uh, we'll wrap it but we'll see everyone on monday scott yeah all right let's do it Oof. bye guys <laughs> bye
Bye, everyone. Thanks a lot. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. It was the greatest space ever. You told me I needed <laughs> exactly. to be more enthusiastic at the exactly. end. I forgot. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, guys. Exactly. Yeah, I appreciate you all. We love you. I'm going to dream of Follow, all of you Follow, like, subscribe, share, repost, quote, tweet. Smash, smash, the, smash the like face button Bye, place. Nasya and, and the space, Nasya. Bye.